Justin Trudeau proved once again he's not ready for prime time. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Brian Lilly. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast, taking it on the road once again today. And I have to tell you, I'm still dumbfounded at Justin Trudeau's comments that he made on Monday night. He went to Toronto to give a speech, and the speech was supposed to be about liberty and inclusion, and instead he turned it into in a, an opportunity to not only put his foot in his mouth, but to claim Stephen Harper is a racist. Yep, that's right. In his attempt to describe how liberty in Canada is all about inclusion, he said people that don't agree with him are racists and bigots, akin to those that turned away Jews in the Second World War. Don't believe me? Well, listen to Trudeau in his own words as he describes Prime Minister Stephen Harper's decision to appeal the federal court ruling that says you cannot wear a, a niqab face covering while taking the oath of citizenship to Mackenzie King's decision, Liberal Prime Minister Mackenzie King's decision to turn away the MS St. Louis and 915 Jews sent back to face Nazi Germany. So we should all shudder to hear the same rhetoric that led to a none-is-too-many immigration policy toward Jews in the 30s and 40s being used to raise fears against Muslims today. Last year, after more than seven years of accepting the practice, his Minister of Immigration declared by fiat that women would no longer be able to wear a niqab during citizenship ceremonies. We all know what is going on here. It is nothing less than an attempt to play on people's fears and foster prejudice directly toward the Muslim faith. This is not the spirit of Canadian liberty, my friends. It is the spirit of the Komagata Maru. It is the spirit of the St. Louis. It is the spirit of none is too many. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that is the would-be Prime Minister of Canada saying that if you don't agree with him on, on face coverings at citizenship ceremonies, then you're just as bad as people that sent Jews back to Germany. Does this hold up to any sort of scrutiny? Does this hold up, is this supported by, by any facts? Or is this just Trudeau doing once again what he does best? And that's opening his mouth and speaking before he actually thinks. A couple of problems with this. One, using the comparison to Nazi Germany is always repugnant. I don't know when politicians are going to get this, but it is always repugnant. Unless it is actually based in fact, like, say, Benjamin Netanyahu going before Congress last week and saying, look, Iran threatening to wipe Israel off the map is a threat to the Jewish people, just as Nazi Germany was. Th that's fine. That's based in reality. That's based in spoken words and what has been said. But what Justin Trudeau did was, said, was to say that asking Muslim immigrants that want to cover their faces to follow hundreds of years of Canadian traditions that your face is uncovered while you testify in court or swear oaths, that that is akin to sending people back to their deaths. By the way, historians estimate, and this is at best an estimation, that a quarter of the 915 Jews that were sent back on the MS St. Louis 
which was rejected by Canada, by the United States, by Cuba, boat filled with Jewish refugees and sent back to Europe, they estimate a quarter of them died in Nazi concentration camps. So that is what Justin Trudeau compares asking a Muslim woman to uncover her face during a citizenship ceremony with. He also alluded to none is too many. Is that supported by any facts? Well, let's take a look at some immigration stats. I'm going to compare 2004, when the liberals were in power, to now. Right now, the number four source country for immigration to Canada is Pakistan. 12,600 immigrants from Pakistan, permanent residents in 2013. Back when the liberals were in power, it was 13,399. Not much of a difference there. Iran is number five. 6,348 back in 2004, 11,291 in 2013. So two of our top source countries for immigrants are Muslim-majority countries. The others, by the way, are China, India, and the Philippines. Those are one, two, and three. Um, And four and five are Muslim-majority countries. Number nine is Iraq. Back when the liberals were in power, there were 1,700, just shy of 1,800 Iraqians came to Canada in 2004, just shy of 5,000 in 2013. Algeria, 3,600 in 2004, 4,300 under the Harper government in 2013. Nigeria, not exactly a Muslim-majority country, but a large percentage of Muslims. It's about even with the Christian population. 1,500 back in 2004, 4,100 in 2013. Egypt, 2,300 back in 2004, 4,100 in 2013, Bangladesh 2,600 in 2004, 37, almost 3,800 in 2013. Is, is, is Justin Trudeau really going to try and say that Stephen Harper has it out for Muslims? That he is somehow trying to stop Muslims from immigrating to this country because he says, remove your face veil? Trudeau is trying to play the this is a religious freedom issue card. I've dealt with that. Anyone that, that uses logic or common sense can deal with that quickly. Now, I say this as someone that's debated Tarek Fatah. Tarek Fatah would like to see a complete ban on faith, Muslim women being allowed to wear face coverings. He thinks that should be against the law. Not allowed in Canada at all. I say that you can't do that, that that is an issue of religious freedom. He claims it's not Islamic, that it is actually cultural. I say, well, that's fine, but people will hold it as their firmly held belief. But what cannot be disputed is that within Islam, there are certain times and places, and in Muslim-majority countries, certain times and places where the face covering must be removed for security reasons, in classrooms, and in the holiest event in the life of any Muslim going to the holiest place in all of Islam, that is Mecca. Muslim women are not allowed to cover their face. When you go on the Hajj to Mecca... Muslim women are not allowed to cover their face. It is forbidden. But Justin Trudeau thinks that it should be allowed in Canada during a citizenship ceremony. And he says if you don't allow that, it's akin to sending Jews back to Nazi Germany and the none-is-too-many policies implemented by his liberal predecessors. How do liberals even get away with this? How do they get away with constantly saying conservatives are racist? Whether we're talking about residential schools, the Indian Act, 
um, the uh, Chinese head tax being put at a level that could not be paid by the majority of, uh, of Chinese immigrants, or the Exclusion Act brought in by Mackenzie King. Time and again, the most racist policies in Canada's history are enacted by liberal governments. And now they turn around and they say, well, Canada has a racist history and it's due to conservatives. Again, not based in any type of fact. By the way, Saudi Arabia, another Muslim-majority country, is another place that is a top-source country for foreign students to Canada. Thousands come now. There were less than 500 back when the liberals were in power. Thousands come now. Is that what he means by none is too many? By increasing it by a huge amount? Trudeau got up and asked Stephen Harper about the whole NACAB issue in the House of Commons on Tuesday. Here's that exchange. Mr. Speaker, the immigration minister called the hijab an indefensible perversion of Canadian values. The member for New Brunswick Southwest, for his part, said some pretty reprehensible things about foreign workers. Instead of dividing Canadians, this Prime Minister should get his priorities straight and present his economic plan for Canadians to see, once again, when will he table the budget? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. In terms of the economy... The Liberal Party continues to bring up his position on the cap, not seeming to understand why almost all Canadians oppose the wearing of face coverings during citizenship ceremonies. Mr. Speaker, it's very easy to understand. It's very easy to understand. We don't allow people to go uncovered, uh, to cover their faces during citizenship ceremonies. And why would Canadians, contrary to our own values, embrace a practice at that time that is, that is not transparent, that is not open, and frankly is rooted in a culture that is anti-women? And Mr. Speaker, that is unacceptable to Canadians, unacceptable to Canadian women. When you add all of these statements, all of these factually inaccurate statements, these speak-before-you-think statements that Trudeau makes, you, you add them all together, whether it's the whip out our CF-18s and show how big they are, give parkas, not bombs, to ISIS, um, claiming that the biggest danger... Last summer, do you remember this? He claimed that the biggest danger to the world was, was actually... Wars being fought over resource depletion, of which there are none, not any major wars anyways, that I, I or anyone else can think of, that the world is getting a less fair place, that's why we have wars going on. When you add all of these together in his basic admiration for China's dictatorship, it really shows a man that is not in a position to lead. This is an immature, ignorant man that insults Canadians at every turn and who has a soft spot for the worst parts of the Islamist supremacist ideology that is being exported by the likes of Saudi Arabia around the world. Later on in the podcast, I want to bring you uh, an interview that I did with Dr. Zudi Jasser at the, uh, the Manning Conference on the weekend. And I want you to listen to what he says in, in terms of dealing with Islam, because this is a conservative practicing Muslim. This is not someone who who is not involved in his faith. And he doesn't support these things. Justin Trudeau, a, a non-Muslim, says we have to. Zudi Jasser says no, there is a way to deal with this and still, still allow full participation of what he calls the House of Islam 
in the West. But embracing these non-Western ideals is not the way to go. But that's Justin Trudeau for you, isn't it? I mean, do you remember back in 2011, he started complaining that the uh, the new citizenship guide, Discover Canada, called gen- female genital mutilation barbaric. He said that the government should go for responsible neutrality in its phrasing and call such acts uh, I, I believe his uh, turn of phrase was absolutely unacceptable. But th- it should be responsibly neutral and not call it barbaric. No, female genital mutilation is barbaric. Honor killings are barbaric. Just remember that Justin Trudeau doesn't see that. He doesn't see it through the veil of the niqab that he so obviously supports as he calls the rest of Canadians racist. I'm Brian Lilly. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. Do check out the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Lilly or brianlilly.com. Stick around. More to come, including my reaction to Pamela Wallen facing a real RCMP investigation, Charlie Angus on the Koch brothers, and my interview with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. We knew this day was coming. Pamela Wallen being investigated by the RCMP. According to documents filed at the Ottawa Courthouse released Monday, the RCMP are investigating Senator Pamela Wallen for 150 Senate expense claims that she made, including 24 trips related to her work on corporate boards in the private sector. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Brian Lilly. Uh, According to the documents, between January 26, 2009 and October 3, 2012, she committed breach of trust and defrauded the Senate of an amount exceeding $5,000. The best line has to go to New Democrat MP Charlie Angus from Northern Ontario, who had this to say. He's put bagmen, he's put party friends in, he's put insiders in. The appointment of uh, Senator Duffy, Senator Wallen, and Senator Brazo all on the same day. There hasn't been a more ridiculous appointment to the Senate than since Caligula appointed his horse. Now, it's interesting. Charlie Angus is always good for a quick clip. But there's another story he was being asked about that relates to elections. And I actually find this more interesting. I've talked about this issue before, and that is third parties, specifically unions, spending a lot of money on campaigns. Well, on the weekend at the Manning Conference, Tom Flanagan said that the Conservatives are going to get their clocks cleaned unless groups outside of the party start ponying up and spending the way unions do. Charlie Angus asked about this. He was asked about it by Elizabeth Thompson, who writes for iPolitics. So listen to the question, listen to the answer. On the weekend, Tom Flanagan was suggesting that uh, groups in favor of a party should start spending uh, money to provide services or things like that to that party outside of the usual political framework. He was talking a lot about, says the unions are doing it, and so therefore groups that favor the Conservative Party should be doing it as well. I I, I think what uh, Tom Flanagan, he's always... He's sort of putting the flag down the field so that the Conservatives start to plan around this. This is the biggest fundraising machine in Canadian history, and he has the gall to go and say out in public about how the Conservatives are under threat here somehow. And the suggestion will be these super PACs that we see in the United States that have completely undermined the democratic system where, you know, the millionaire... um, 
Koch brothers and billionaire Koch brothers and other right-wing elements can put all this money into uh, trying to jerry-rig public opinion and that through, uh, through their advertisements. So I, I find it fascinating that Flanagan would be making the claim that conservatives are somehow being failed in fundraising when that's all they do. But if we start to see the presence of these kind of super PACs in Canada, it will be a real detriment to Canadian democracy. Isn't that what we're seeing? Uh, Angus, you know, typical progressive, he's asked about election spending in Canada, goes off on the Koch brothers, the boogeyman of American right-wing politics. Uh, here's the thing, the Koch brothers actually spend less on politics than unions do. So I put that to Angus and asked him a follow-up. He didn't want to answer. Isn't that what we're seeing with uh, the unions, Lead Now, uh, Dogwood Initiative? I mean, they're even writing about how they're working, organizing to run campaigns in ridings. And you mentioned the Koch brothers. You have to know that on both sides of the borders, unions put in more money to politics than the Koch brothers ever could or would. That, those are facts, Charlie. I can't, I, I can't, I can't beat on the numbers. So, isn't there, isn't this already happening with, well, no, with these groups on the progressive side? We've seen a government that has misused every lever that they have to raise funds relentlessly. So Tom Flanagan is their front guy. So uh, they're going to get their, they're going to imitate what's being done in the United States, and this is going to be, uh, I think, a real detriment. Uh, kudos to Thompson. She brought it back to unions and outside leftist groups funding. Uh, all Angus wanted to do was talk about Koch brothers and the Fraser Institute and everything else. Did not want to deal with the fact that unions are going to be spending big in the next election. They are going to probably be the single most powerful force in the federal election, whether it's through advertising or through their partnerships with groups like Lead Now, with, with groups like uh, Dogwood Initiative, with groups like the Broadband Institute or Rabble, they're going to spend big money to organize on the ground and defeat the Conservatives. They've already run their prototype campaign in Ontario, they've seen that it works, and they're going to bring it to the federal level. And all the federal unions are going to be out campaigning against their employers. So you would think that this might be of concern to some people. But no, not to Charlie Angus. He just wants to talk about the Koch brothers. He wants to talk about Pamela Wallen. He wants to talk about whatever scandal he can link to the government. Look, fair enough. Pamela Wallen's expenses are a problem. The Mike Duffy trial coming up, that's a problem. There's all kinds of problems in the Senate. But I think the bigger problem facing Canada's democracy is this unbridled spending by union leaders and union uh, executives of members' dues monies, trying to say that they will decide the, uh, how money is going to be spent on, uh, on a campaign, even if it means that they're not following their members' wishes. I want to bring up a, a quote that we had a little while ago of uh, the head of the Canadian Labour uh, Congress. So just so you know, the quote I'm going to read to you is from Hassan Youssef. He's the president of the Canadian Labour Congress, and this is quoted from rabble.ca of a conference back in February. And he says, I'm going to tell you some news that you don't want to hear. We did the most comprehensive survey of our membership, and that's not you in the room. That's the unengaged membership, the ones who don't show up in the meeting. And here's what our unengaged members are saying. They think, for the most part, that Stephen Harper's done a reasonable job. So... 
We're talking about union leaders saying they polled their members and their members like Stephen Harper. Does that mean that they're going to support Stephen Harper? No, that means they're going to use the dues from those members to defeat Stephen Harper. And how are they doing it? According to Dogwood Initiative, a left-wing group out of Vancouver, they are going to spend, spend, spend organizing people now. So the spending happens now, outside of the RIP period. They organize canvassers to go door-to-door, to volunteer, to knock on neighbors, to stand in supermarket parking lots, to, to get people to sign up, and then come October, that's when the results come in. So the money spent now, there's no actual problem with spending the money now because it doesn't count towards any third-party advertising or third-party expenses. They spend the money now, they do the training now, and then they get the results in October. It is pure Obama organizing for America tactics, community organizing, and it's going to play a huge role in the next election. I'm Brian Lilly. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. Do make sure you check out the website, brianlilly.com or facebook.com slash brianlilly. Back in a couple moments in, with more content, including a great interview from the Manning Conference of Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is a conservative, observant Muslim who says the way to fight back against jihadism is with the preaching of liberty and bringing back a Cold War mentality. More to come. I've seen him for years on Fox. I've caught him before on Glenn Beck's program. And on Saturday, I actually got to meet him. A fantastic guy, a guy that we should all be paying more attention to, Dr. Zudi Jasser. Now, I had a chance to interview him for the Media, and I want to bring you the audio of that interview. If you haven't had a chance to see it, uh, then listen to it now. And if you haven't had a chance to check out The Rebel, make sure you do. The Rebel.media, it's the new project we've launched, uh, launched with Ezra Levant and others who've uh, left over after Sun News, decided we needed to keep going. But we spent a lot of time on the weekend at the Manning Conference, and Zudi Jasser was there talking about how to fight back against Islamist supremacy and Islamism. And I want you to hear our conversation from Saturday morning. Here at the Manning Center, I'm with Dr. Zudi Jasser. He is with the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. Yes. That's correct? Yes, okay. Sir. And I've been watching you on Fox News. I've been watching you on with my friend Glenn Beck talking about, as, as an observant Muslim, mm-hmm. that there is a battle for the soul of Islam. And, and I, I'm, I'm happy that you are out there making this argument and that you're bringing the argument here to the Manning Center because I think sometimes there's this, this false idea that Muslims go to mosque will always fall on the Islamist side. And you're saying no. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, as, as, as fearful as the Obama administration and so many in the liberal community are in addressing Islam and Islamism, there is nothing more American than fighting back against theocracy. And I think this is ultimately where we are in our time in history as Muslims, is that this isn't a battle against Islam, but within the House of Islam is this battle against the theocrats, what I call the Islamist global mafia. There's domestic lobbyists that include this Islamist mafia, and then there's global countries. Like the Brotherhood and other organizations. Yep, so the populist movements are like the Muslim Brotherhood, Jamaat Islamiyah in Pakistan, uh, ISIS as its most militant variety. And then their progenitors, the boot camps for ISIS and Muslim Brotherhood are Saudi Arabia, uh, Egyptian dictatorship prior in which these are Islamists, but they're oligarchs. That marriage for the last 50 to 80 years has created this cauldron 
the Arab awakening opened up, and now there's a debate happening within Islam that's going to be very bloody, no different than the Reformation and, and actually the American Revolution, French Revolution, and other revolutions for freedom and liberty were against theocracy. Okay, let me ask you about, um, you talk, I, I believe you're a military veteran, correct? Yes, 11 okay. years in the U.S. Navy. Wow. Well, thank you for your service, different country, but I always, I always appreciate military service. I want to ask you about this then. You always identify as you're an American. Yes. You are an American Muslim. We saw the release of the video from Michael Zahav Bibo yesterday, and I don't think he is different than other jihadists in that he sees himself as separate from the society that he grew up in that allowed him to thrive and eventually turn to his Islamism. Mm-hmm. So is, is that part of, of the battle, is, is getting people to say that, uh, that they belong to the society they live in, that they are Canadians, they are Americans, rather than... I am a Muslim, and, and, and that is the only thing I will identify with. It's, it's not only part of the battle, it is the battle. That is the core. Terrorism is a tactic. It is a symptom, no different than anti-Semitism, hate of the West. All these are symptoms of the ideology. That supremacist ideology is Islamo-patriotic movement. Jihadism is based on the sense that Muslim youth, wherever they are, feel an affinity, a, def- a need to defend the identity of the Islamic State. The only way to diffuse that, or the antidote against it is the identity of the liberal secular state that and i felt my parents felt american the moment they left the plane in 67 escaped persecution in syria came here they said you know this country america gave us the ability to practice our faith more freely than any so-called islamic state so this is the problem when you get Islamist states and the new what I call the neo-caliphate is the organization of Islamic co- cooperation if you get them to help you against Islamism or Islamopatriotism it's like getting the meth dealers to help you with drug violence I mean they, they are fueled on the Islamic state uh, supremacism they're not going to help you with liberty American, American or Canadian uh, a sense of uh, loyalty to this country I want to ask you a couple things. One, that deal with the issue of supremacism. One is the use of language, and the other is, in my view, the attempt to bring the Sharia-type elements mm-hmm. to this continent. Uh, but first, the language, uh, jihadism. Prime Minister Stephen Harper is being criticized for using terms like Islamicism, which you've just used, jihadism, that he should use terms like President Obama uses, which is violent extremism. What's your take on it? All I can say is that if you want to enable Muslims like myself, like Tariq Fatah, like Raheel Raza, Farzana Hassan, all these Canadian Muslims that are really the ones, the Muslim Canadian Congress really is the, is the group that prevented Sharia law from separating out Muslims in Canada. If you want to empower them, you have to call it Islamism. You have to call it jihadism. If we're going to have, as Tariq calls it, a jihad against jihad, you have to call it that in order to defeat it. You can't defeat, the West didn't defeat Christian theocracy by calling it uh, you know, some type of autocracy. It was a theocracy. So jihadism has to be put into the dustbin of history. And the only way to do that, because right now by marginalizing us, by having President Obama become the ex-communicator-in-chief, he excommunicates us and makes the current mafia of Islamist governments and movements name and become the leaders of our community when in fact they are the core problem. All right. So... There's been the issue of lawfare, and I know you followed Ezra Levant's case with yeah. publishing the Danish cartoons and then being taken to human rights tribunals. But that's not that's not all. We've had court cases go to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decide to throw out hundreds of years of legal tradition and say that Muslim women can testify in court as witnesses against an accused with the niqab on. 
we've just had a lower court ruling saying that you can uh, take the oath of citizenship with the niqab on. To me, these are attempts to, to undermine Canadian values and and traditions that uphold the liberty and freedom that we cherish. And it, it to me, it's, it's a bit of Sharia by stealth. Am I overreacting when I say, look, you want to wear the niqab? Go ahead and wear the niqab. But there are certain times in a Western society that you can't. I couldn't agree with you more, but let me reframe that a little bit in that it's not about Canadian or American values. It's about freedom and liberty. And that will constantly conflict against jihadism, against Islamism, against the misogyny of interpretations of Sharia law. So what they're doing is using our freedoms in Canada and America to create blasphemy laws in this country. So by doing that, they then prevent the reform necessary. So we should get Muslims to have platforms to debate these Islamists and say, you know what, it's not about Canada. It's about we as liberal Muslims who believe in our own choices. I mean, my wife and I, for example, have our own Islamic marriage contract, but we believe in the equality of each other in our faith. And we want to ask five imams, and then we'll make our own sixth opinion. You see, that is intrinsically American. While the Islamists want you to take spoon-feed Islamist Sharia from their leaders and not give you the ability to make up your own mind. And that is theocracy. And what happens is Canada and America and Europe, France, France, uh, France Germany, etc., become accomplices in pushing forth draconian medieval law. And that's why you see ISIS emboldened and the radicalization of our Muslim communities within these constructs. You mentioned to me uh, while we were getting ready that there's material passed around in mosques in uh, not far from where you live yeah. that helps radicalize people, and it's often doctored photos. Yeah. Um, how do you fight back against that? We've just had six more kids out of Montreal leave to go and fight in Syria. You can't pick a major city in this country uh, that ha- doesn't have a, a large number of kids that have decided to join one of the jihadist movements. Um, in fact, we've got more. If I read James Clapper, the National Intelligence Director in Washington last week, correctly, Canada has sent more jihadists over to join the fight than America has, and your population is ten times the size. So how do you fight back against that indoctrination going on in the mosque if you're not part of the mosque? And and the U.K. had a number that there were more Muslims fighting with ISIS than there were in their own military, which tells you something. So the bottom line is, is that this is a new Cold War. And we won the Cold War against the Soviets by having an information operation that was through the U.S. Information Agency and others that created Radio Free Europe, that created uh, a movement against socialism, for capitalism, against Soviet imperialism, the sense that the, the solution to humanity was freedom and democracy and free markets. Right now, we're doing none of that. They're spending billions, not only ISIS's millions on the high-tech ideas that they're spreading through the internet. The Saudis as well. The Saudis have spent tens of billions, hundreds of billions on an information operation that is about Islamic supremacism and only one or two interpretations of the Quran. The interpretation of the Quran my father and grandfather taught me who were experts in Sharia, you won't be able to find. So this debate is so one-sided. The West needs to start getting into the game of taking sides within the House of Islam, not becoming theologians, let us do that, but at least taking the side of liberty within the House of Islam and thus beginning this, where is Radio Free Islam, Radio Free uh, uh, Middle East? It doesn't exist. And We that, need to make them want Levi's. 
like it's, in the Cold War. That's, that's, yeah. that's what the kids in East Germany eventually said, I want to get a pair of Levi's. Let, let me push back a little bit on that because it's, you know, right now, Karen Hughes was doing back in the Bush administration sort of the public diplomacy. If they love America and they see Muslims succeeding, somehow there won't be a problem. Well, it's beyond just the, the free market uh, products. It was about the ideas. And we never wanted to, because in order to engage the ideas, you had to prove that theocracy, Islamism, was the problem. And right now, post-Arab awakening, we have huge opportunities. The Egyptians rejected the Brotherhood. The Tunisians, six weeks ago, just rejected the Islamist party in an election. And that's even without any of our help. So imagine if we were in the game of promoting liberty through a Muslim lens for them, with them. And, and you, won't need boot, you don't need boots on the ground. There's revolutions happening. But right now, the Khomeinists and the Jihadists are dominating that conversation. All right, Zudi, great talking to you. Thanks so much, and keep up the good work. Thank you. Appreciate it. That wraps it for the Brian Lilly Podcast. We'll be back again tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Make sure you check out the website, brianlilly.com, facebook.com slash brianlilly if you want to follow all the things that I'm doing. And as always, remember, I'm on your side.